Welcome, everyone, to episode 130, Autism Genes. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, which is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? It's chilly, it's rainy, but I'm still getting ready to give thanks. All our listening audience out there probably getting ready for Thanksgiving, too. I don't know. I mean, I'm thankful for a lot of things. I don't want to bore you, but uh, are you feeling optimistic and thankful these days, Kiki? Are you feeling resentful? No, no, no. Me? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. But I've been in a little bit of a slump, I'm not going to lie. So coming into the new year and the holiday season, I'm trying to kind of top load it with some positive thinking because God knows when the new year comes, I'm going to be really depressed. Don't be depressed. Let's have some optimism. Let's have some gratitude. I mean, when the new year comes, we've got a little bit of a blue wave coming in. There is a bunch of science heading into back into politics, which is incredibly uplifting for those of us who have been concerned about the state of science in the United States of America. Yes, this is why I talk to you. Just flipped my mood up. New Year's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Yes. And we also have an amazing episode ahead. So let's get down to business. I am grateful to be here talking about stem cell science with all of you. Make sure all of you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you not only can subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. Of course, Follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so new episodes automatically download to your phone. And we do have a great show ahead today. In addition to all of the latest science and Dalen's stem cell news, we have a wonderful guest ahead for you, Dr. Karun Singh. We're going to talk with him about his recent work in stem cell reports that uses stem cells as a model to investigate genes involved in autism. So that is coming up. Dalen. Yeah, but first, Kiki, we're talking about the new year. Get this. Stem cell technologies would like to let you know that stem cell is hiring. Stem cell tech is a world leader in developing tools and services For scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research, we've talked about this, united by a foundation of scientific integrity, driven by a mission to advance science globally. Stem cells, they like to say, it's a team of scientists helping scientists, and they're looking for creative, driven, science-minded people to join their international team, all right? So get over to the website, explore more than 80 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication. Hey, check it out at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, Kiki, without further ado, please get started. Yeah, let's jump into this roundup. We have some great stories ahead. So first, microneedles for the eyes. I mean, when you think of drugs and getting them into the eyes, one of the least favorable ways to do it is to stick a needle in your eye, right? Nobody (laughs) wants that. I didn't didn't know we were applying drugs to eyes, but yes, a priori, (laughs) needle in the eye is the last option. Right. Well, there are certain chronic eye diseases, glaucoma, macular degeneration, that currently they either use eye drops or they use injections to get drugs into the eyes for treatments. However, these are really inefficient ways to get the drugs in there. So eye drops themselves get washed away, and typically only about 5% of the drugs actually make it into the eye to have an effect. And so there's a lot of wasted potential, really. So You don't want to get an actual injection into the eyeball. Researchers have been trying to figure out new ways to apply drugs to the eyes. Biologist Peng Chen and his colleagues have been looking at microneedles. I mean, this still sounds like needles to the eyes, but 
Microneedles are little teeny, teeny, tiny needles that are being used for a, a number of applications, transdermal applications. They're little tiny needles that you barely feel, actually. And they typically use hyaluronic acid, which is found in the body's connective tissue and in the vitreous fluid of the eye. It's transparent. In, there are some eye drops that are actually used to treat dry eyes that contain this hyaluronic acid. And it's a popular choice for dissolving microneedles for transdermal drugs. So you stick the, the microneedles onto the skin or whatever tissue, and they dissolve away, and the drug gets into the system that way. However, the problem is, in the eye, because hyaluronic is part of the system there, the dissolving happens too fast. And so the researchers wanted to figure out how to slow it down a bit so that they could get a more extended drug release, which is more useful for these chronic-type eye diseases. So they combined hyaluronic with a molecule called methyl methacrylic anhydride, and they created a material called MEHA. And it's a double-layered compound that they used ultraviolet light to trigger reactions to bind polymer chains together. And then they got this material that could resist dissolving long enough to be able to release a payload of a drug over a couple of days. So this would be the a kind of thing where a little patch or maybe even a lens could be put on your eye that would have these microneedles on one side of it and the microneedles would dissolve away and you take the little the patch away and all good. I think it's brilliant. I think the problem here is branding. They need to get rid of the whole needle. Right, you can't. <laughs> Here's a micro needle system for no. It says you said needle. <laughs> you lost a needle. Call it like. IPad. Yeah, something. Yeah, different branding. This is the problem. Scientists. They do all the hard work. They're just kicking upstairs to the marketing department now. Okay, guys. <laughs> Yeah, so this dual-layered microneedles, they could hypothetically add another layer to make it last even longer. In their experiment, they created mouse-sized versions of the patches, which are about two millimeters square with nine 500-micrometer tall microneedles. And they applied them to mice with a condition called corneal neovascularization. And this happens when abnormal blood vessels grow into the tissue of the cornea. And they used an antibody called DC-101 to block a protein that's important in the blood vessel formation. And they found that when they applied these microneedles after a few days of dissolving, they decreased the abnormal blood vessel growth by about 90%. And so this was a very simple application. And so now, you know, we got to move from mice to men to see if it will actually work better in people. There's a long way to go. They think that a human application would have to be about 100 microneedles that are longer, not the 500 micrometer, but 800 micrometer long and 400 wide at the base. Yeah, so more testing, but maybe someday if they get rid of the needle name, there will be no more needles to the eyes. I'm going to say, here's what it is, call it a micro-massager. Micro-massager. I like that idea. Sounds better. It's an eye patch. There we go. Another big question in biology is how the heck did mitochondria end up in all of our cells? We talk about this symbiotic existence at one point where one cell needed something that another cell produced and it engulfed a cell that eventually became the mitochondria and that took over the energy production for all of the cells in our bodies, right? So ATP production from the mitochondria. But how did this happen? And so researchers from Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, Peter Schultz and his colleagues, decided that they would try and make a free-living organism into an endosymbiont, and they created a hybrid cell in the lab. They fused two organisms, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, baker's yeast, and a gut bacteria, E. coli, together. But they had to do a little modification to get this to happen. They disabled a gene in the yeast's mitochondria so that they couldn't produce ATP. E. coli then were engineered to lack a gene that's needed to make the B vitamin thiamine. And so the E. coli needed the thiamine, the yeast produce it, 
The yeast needed ATP, the E. coli were still producing it. And they also gave the bacteria a transporter protein to move the ATP or ADP in or out of the cell so that the E. coli could be engulfed in the yeast and be able to provide that ATP energy source. The problem there, they got the yeast to do this. The yeast ate the E. coli. The E. coli started producing the ATP that was needed, but the yeast in the internal mechanisms were like, ah, this is an invader. And so, of course, the defense mechanisms ate the bacteria. So it wasn't, <laughs> they're like, let's just eat it. We like it. And so it didn't keep up. It didn't create a true symbiosis. So then they decided they had to give the E. coli another protein. They uh, grabbed some snare proteins from chlamydia trachomatis bacteria, and these produce chlamydia. The snare proteins prevent host cells' digestive lysosomes from dismantling invading microbes. This is how they, the chlamydia protects itself inside of cells. And so these E. coli that were given the snare, they learned how to grow inside the yeast cells. And there they had hybrid yeast bacteria cells that grew for more than 40 generations. Yikes. But it was a chlamydia bacterial yeastoid. I know. Yeah. So from the gonads, people. So there were a whole bunch of modifications that had to take place. And it's kind of this proof of, well, it could have worked this way, but imagining the likelihood of all these kinds of situations arising at once. It's an interesting experiment, but it's hard to imagine that this is exactly how it happened eons ago. But in terms of like, blow your mind type thought, it's like, has there ever been a precedent for changing something into a symbiont? Like, right. that's crazy you know so amazing yep scary very impressive very impressive creating symbionts in the lab another interesting study out this week researchers looking at tumor cell growth and we all know from the 2018 nobel awards cancer immunology treatments have been focused on a protein called pd1 over recent years Researchers started looking at this protein and T cells in mice. And researchers at the University of California, Davis School of Medicine, and their colleagues found that immune cells, the T cells in mice, are more dysfunctional when the mice are obese than in their non obese counterparts. And essentially, they determined that obesity fuels tumor growth by suppressing the immune system's ability to respond to cancer through the levels of PD-1. So compared with T cells in thin mice, T cells in obese mice had higher levels of PD-1. This suppresses immune responses. The researchers also found that one link to these PD-1 levels is leptin. And when they treated leptin-deficient mice with leptin, tumor growth increased, as did levels of PD-1. And they showed that tumors in obese mice and humans might be more vulnerable to therapies that inhibit PD-1. But elevated PD-1 expression in obese people could be one of many factors responsible for the effect. Hmm. So is that to say that obesity puts you at higher risk for cancer because you don't have, you lose the whole native surveillance system exactly so pd1 is upregulated t cells get inhibited or their their response to tumors gets inhibited and yes so there's there's something going on there get in the gym people <laughs> we do know that obesity does lead to prevalence of cancer especially as people age so this is potentially a mechanism that is involved in that yeah, it's a bit because I always assumed that was like gastro type tumor, increased colon or cancer rates. But I guess it's all comers by this type of mechanism. So that's really illuminating. Yeah. And my final story for the roundup has to do with the genes adapting us to high elevations. Researchers looking at Andean populations have discovered that 
people in the Andes potentially evolved unique mutations compared to other high-altitude peoples. John Lindo, a population geneticist at Emory University in Atlanta, sequenced seven genomes from people who live in the Peruvian Andes from 6,800 years ago to about 1,800 years ago and compared the genomes to two modern populations, the high-living Aymara of Bolivia and the Juliche Pehuenche in the lowlands of southern Chile. And also compared to peoples of the Tibetan plateau, they have genetic variations that reduce hemoglobin levels in their blood and increase oxygen efficiency or the use of oxygen efficiency in their bodies. And they looked for signs in the genome of adaptations that would lead to this in the Andean populations, and they did not find that. However, they did find signs of selection on a gene called DST. This gene is related to cardiovascular health and heart muscle development. And so it's indicative of changes to the heart muscles themselves, allowing the Highlanders to adapt to these high elevations more readily. More than one way to skin a cat, eh? What's interesting is the idea of, you know, human movement you know, our movement around the planet and ending up in different places and that unique location leading to unique adaptations that allow us to do the same thing. You know, this convergent evolution phenotypically, however, it's unique genetically. Yeah, I wonder what's going on. How many generations does it take to adapt? I wonder is the one question. And what kind of adaptations are we in the midst now? Right. I yeah. think negative in a lot of cases. What's this going is cool. on now? This is cool. I wish I had a stronger heart. Be a better person. <laughs> no, I don't. Is that what has to do with it? <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was part of it. <laughs> yeah. What do you have? Tell me some stories. Oh, I'll tell you some stories, Kiki. I got a lot of stories, but first, let me tell you about some science. I'm going to start off with some deep basic. Okay, deep. Basic. This is Ryoichi Nagatomi from Tokohu University in Japan. They have a story that was in Stem Cell Reports about the ubiquitin proteasome system, okay, and how that relates to stem cell cycling. So, background adult muscle stem cells, it's satellite cells as they're known, you need them for skeletal muscle generation, constantly happening, breaking down, rebuilding your muscles. And you need a balance between quiescence, proliferation, and differentiation in order to keep that whole system in balance and maintain the regenerative function of the satellite cell pool, right? And so who would have thought that the proteasome played a role? I mean, you know, the, the ubiquitin proteasome plays a role in everything. It's how most protein degradation mammalian cells happen. So if you mess up that process, you can imagine it's going to gum up the works, but how dysfunction in this system affects tissue stem cells remains relatively unclear. So in this study, Nagatomi and his group, they looked at function of the ubiquitin proteasome in satellite cells. They used the mouse model where they took out this, knocked out this crucial proteasomal component called RPT3 only in the satellite cells. And when they did that, they saw decreased proteasome activity, as you would expect, of course. And what it did is it impaired the ability of these cells to proliferate, to survive and differentiate, and that resulted in defective muscle regeneration. Also, it induced the proliferation defects and apoptosis in the cells. And mechanistically, in, in terms of the link, they found that this deficiency in proteasomal activity upregulated P53 obviously also heavily involved in cell survival, cell death. And in this case, that caused cell cycle arrest. So there you go. With the proteasome all gummed up, these muscle stem cells kind of stall and they lose their regenerative capacity within the system. So watch out for that if you ever have an issue with your ubiquitin proteasome kiki. It's important. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. This is this is very basic mechanism. Uh, my one criticism of this story would be I would love to see a parallel cell type or a non-stem cell type as a point of comparison because it's one of those things, and I'm a novice here when it comes to ubiquitin proteasome, but it's one of those things that's so central. I feel like if you mess with it, 
you know, you're going to wreck the system somehow or another. So I would have loved to see if this is like a generic effect in stem cells or other cells, or if this is really unique to the muscle satellite cell compartment. So I don't know. I think that's an important question. I mean, ubiquitin, it's in the name. It's ubiquitous. <laughs> like you said, it is essential. And it's, you know, across organisms, from simple cellular organisms to multicellular organisms, this ubiquitin proteasome system is a major part of the, like, the trash cleanup system in cells. Yeah. So, you know, it's still something. Yeah. Talk about something. You know, the holidays are coming up. And we always, this time of year, we always like to throw a few liver stories out there, you know, for all you people to make you feel comfortable about your alcohol abuse in the months to come. All right, and here you go. It's <laughs> a good, neat story. High impact. I love this one. It was in Cell Stem Cell from Li Jian Hui's group. Hope I pronounced that right. Chinese Academy of Sciences in Shanghai. And it's about hepatocyte self-renewal, but it's very like translational and just like kind of like almost engineering type approach here. So, you know, hepatocytes in particular, transplantation of hepatocytes has huge potential because liver disease is a huge problem. And the supply of transplantable liver is in, you know, very short, not a lot. And the, so not only the donor availability, but you can't really expand hepatocytes in vitro at the current state of the art. So if, if you could take out nice hepatocytes, try and expand them, which you would think, because you know, the liver is the most regenerative organ in the body. Cut out 70%. And like in a month, your liver's back. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it is. And it, it needs to be that way, right? The way we live. But the idea of trying to transport that self-renewal capacity ex vivo into a dish, expanding and then putting it back in. It's been around for a while, but we just can't break through on the protocols. But Li Jean's group, they kind of broke through. Uh, they report here in Cell Stem Cell a defined media. So this is no like serum or anything. This is kind of clinic ready that allows a 10,000-fold expansion of human hepatocytes. And what's interesting here in terms of the phenotype is these proliferating hepatocytes, they're biphenotypic, meaning that they retain hepatic features, but they also are endowed with this progenitor profile, this progenitor cell expression profile. And, you know, the idea is there is that they're kind of taking on intermediate stem progenitor cell type that can expand in vitro, and then they can engraft into injured mouse liver, presumably human liver too, although those studies are still to come. And they can graph with a level that's comparable with primary hepatocytes. So take them out, put them right back in. These cells go, do as well, except they've been expanded 10,000-fold. So you can imagine the benefit there. Uh, and they can mature when you put them in and function. So this is a big deal. It's a protocol that enables large-scale expansion of transplantable hepatocytes, human hepatocytes. And, you know, it's a matter of time before you can develop this approach for treating disease. And this is probably going to go hand in glove with some of the induced pluripotent type approaches or directly reprogrammed approaches. So this is one of those generic advances where they've figured out a way to make these cells grow and it's going to make a huge impact and just in time for the holidays. <laughs> I think that understanding the process of the hepatic proliferation is essential to being able to eventually not just transplant, but, hey, let me just give you a pill or a drug cocktail or something. Maybe here's nanobots that go in and specifically apply whatever the cocktail is to the liver, right? And maybe can help you out after the holidays. <laughs> right. Or, you know, keep that transplantation, the invasive transplantation from having to take place. But, mm -hmm. you know... Take that element out of it. God knows, nobody wants to expand anything in vitro 10,000 folds. A lot of risk there for mutation or some kind of, you know, quality control errors. So you're right. Direct delivery mm -hmm. probably the better way. And the mechanism there is kind of, there's some insight there into the mechanism. As well as the cytokines they use in their recipe can tell you some of the pathways you need to trigger. Yeah. Get the endogenous pool going. So... Get to drinking. All right. 
need a drink after this story, I'll tell you. We talked about this in, in previous stories, how they're, you know, boldly moving forward with these clinical trials of in Japan of IPS cells. Okay, this is when we talked about they were gonna move forward with the Parkinson's trial. They did it. There's a male patient in his fifties. He received a stem cell transplant into the brain in an early phase clinical trial for Parkinson's. All right, the patients can be monitored for two years. These are the endpoints. Two years, given immune-suppressing drugs the whole time to minimize rejection. That's why, why is that? Because although these are IPS cells, they had that setback that we've talked about. So instead of using patient-specific IPS cells for each case, where there's a risk of having, you know, oncogenic transformation in each patient, they have these banks. So they got to immune-suppress this poor guy two years. This is a quote. So Dr. Takayuki Kikuchi, surgeon at Kyoto University Hospital in Japan, we performed the three-hour operation. This is what he said after. Quote, we made a hole in the frontal part of the head's left side and transplanted some 2.4 million cells. <laughs> okay. I'm just quoting that just because that in a vacuum, I think, is a scary um, kind of indicator of how quickly we're moving. Mm-hmm. Like That's an aggressive thing to do to somebody. Putting a hole in this guy's head, he's 50. It's probably, you know, I'm sure it's early onset, but 2.4 million cells. Wow. IPS. So, all right. So far, patient, no adverse reaction. This is a safety trial, bear in mind. And if the patient tolerates the treatment, six more Parkinson's patients are going to be enrolled in the trial. And for now, it was injected just in the left side of the patient's brain with the idea being that you repeat this on the right side in six months if there's no adverse reaction. So that's, it's well designed, and I'll give them that well-designed. It's relatively careful. They're doing unilateral. They're doing one patient before and seeing what happens. It's not a huge amount of cells, but it's pretty aggressive. Best case scenario, they want to see patients improve to the extent that they don't have to take medicine. And ultimately, the aim is to mass produce cells from IPS for treatment. But we've talked about this before. I think there's a, like a cultural conflict of interest here. Japan is pushing forth so aggressively because of the birthplace of this technology. I think they need to be more measured. But this is a big deal. It's a milestone. So you've got to pay attention. This is huge. We're all going to keep looking at this and hope that it is well tolerated and that they'll be able to move forward. You know, the idea this is only one person, this is as much as an anecdote at this point, but that's why you enroll more people as tolerance is proven. Yeah, but one guy, this is one human being. Yeah. Makes me feel uncomfortable. It's one human being whose quality of life is significantly impacted by his Parkinson's disease. Sure. And you know what? I bet you're right. I bet this guy is psyched. And I'm, I'm, I'm honest, I'm psyched because I want to see what happens. So. We're all still hoping and waiting that no tumors form, that these IPS cells don't go out of control, that the body's immune system is able to control and maintain the growth and development of those cells so they integrate appropriately into the brain. Yeah, there's a lot of of outcome measures. And I I thought they're going to pull out this guy's brain after the fact to see how it went. So, yeah, I don't know. Kind of opaque on the the endpoints, but I guess if we see... Not something bad doesn't happen, and that's a good outcome. Yeah. Talk about good outcomes. There's maybe a future therapy in the brain here we're talking about, although this one, of course, as is traditional, starting in the mouth. So it's about cerebral palsy. It's one of the most common pediatric neurodevelopmental disorders. It affects more than 17 million people worldwide. And the current treatment options are restricted to rehabilitative approaches, which alleviate and mitigate symptoms, but there's no therapies that have been effective in repairing the actual injury within the brain. So in order to study the potential using stem cells, right, because the injury, so you can imagine a regenerative approach makes sense. So to study the potential of stem cells as a therapeutic strategy, a team of Canadian researchers led by Michael Failing, this is at the Kremble Research Institute in Toronto, published in eNeuro, by the way, they induced this brain injury in young mice that models this uh, cerebral palsy. Then the mice are injected with neural stem slash precursor cells, what they're calling them, directly into the corpus callosum. And this is the dense bundle of nerve fibers. 
that connects the left and right sides of the brain. And this is where the demyelination that underlies the disease manifestations is prevalent in cerebral palsy patients. So it's a good target. And amazingly, the stem cells were able to repair the lesions in the corpus callosum. So, yeah, the neural stem cells, they repair the lesions, right? Wow. But they were found to survive. They were there. They were persisting. But here's the thing. The neural stem slash precursor cells, as they call them, they didn't differentiate. They didn't become the oligos that you'd expect to then remyelinate. But they recruited endogenous oligos oligodendrocytes, I should say, that came and uh, remyelinated and repaired neurons in the corpus callosum. And that's what the researchers are attributing this repair to, is this recruitment. So, you know, this is real. I mean, the functional studies show that the therapy, these mice improve their walking and the use of their limbs. But this indirect mechanism, I think, leaves a lot to be desired. Or perhaps maybe it's fertile ground. Maybe you could find what those recruiting signals are from the neural stem cells and just bypass the whole cell therapy thing. So I think that's the point right there. Just emphasize that, I think, because it, it was kind of like, I wouldn't say it's a negative result. It's like we put the cells in and they fixed it, but they didn't fix it. They told something else to fix it. I would have put that in the title. You know, paracrine but did they, signals. Did they show those? Par- Obviously, it is something like paracrine signals, but did they show that? They haven't shown what they are yet. And so that's the next step. What are these engrafting, the cells that are involved in the engraftment, what are they doing to stimulate? So they're taking up some role that's broken in the body, mm-hmm. you know, and picking up whatever that role is to be able to allow the body to remyelinate and fix what it was broken. Yeah. yeah, it takes gets paracrine cells. I mean, I don't, if you're, you know, if you've got one of the 17 million people, yeah. huge population that could be could benefit from this approach. So yeah, and could they fix it without shoving cells into your brain? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Unless you're Japan, where you know that people <laughs> wait to shove something in their brain, especially if it's cells. For science. For science and for Shinya. So that's it. That's what I got. And I can't wait to get into this interview. Kiki, what are we going to do now? Yeah, well, what we are going to do now is I'm going to tell you a little something from Stem Cell Technologies before we get into the interview. Are you genome editing yet? CRISPR-Cas9 technology is transforming cell biology research, but can be challenging to set up in the lab. Stem Cell Technologies is gathering feedback on this topic to start a discussion on key challenges. Take their survey for a chance to win a $500 travel award to a conference of your choice. Seriously, take a survey and you are entered to win a $500 travel award. That's like a couple of nights in a hotel or possibly your airfare taken care of. This could be a huge benefit to many of us who who are struggling to find funding to get to our conferences, to share our research so that others can find out what we're doing. You know how you can take this survey? Visit stemcell.com slash CRISPR survey. Stemcell.com slash CRISPR survey. C-R-I-S-P-R survey. All right, so now on to our interview. Our guest today is Dr. Karun Singh, Principal Investigator and David Braley Chair in Human Stem Cell Research and an Associate Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences. The overall goal of Dr. Karun Singh's research program is to use stem cell-based models to study neurological disorders and devise new therapies for these conditions. Currently, his program is focused on studying autism and neuropathy, and he's here to talk with us today about his work and most recent paper in Stem Cell Reports that's looking at autism and genes that are involved in that. Welcome to the show, Dr. Singh. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We're very glad to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be studying stem cells as applied to neuropathy and autism? My kind of love for this area really began during my postdoctoral fellowship in Boston, where the whole idea of using iPS cell technology to model brain disorders was kind of really taking off 
back then. This is probably around uh, 2009, 2008, during that time. I have a mouse background, typical of many neuroscientists. So, you know, we're, we love to think that what we're doing is absolutely the most critical work using mouse models, but we know it, there's more to it. And we are studying human diseases. So it was perfect timing, really, where my being in Boston and being in an environment where IPS technologies were taking off. And in addition to that, being involved in research and some of the new genomic studies that were coming out at the same time, it was a perfect marriage between stem cell technologies and genomics. And so that is really where my appreciation for the power of IPS cell technology to kind of model different disorders like neural development disorders, even neuropathy, even age-related brain disorders has really burst quite wide open in the last few years in my lab. So for me, that's where it started. And in continuing 2018 now, it's going quite well overall. So many labs are doing it. It's a very exciting time. But that's really how it started for me. It's kind of being at the right place at the right time and being in a place where this type of work was really encouraged, uh, some of the riskier stuff. So it was really good for me and my program. Yeah, it is, it's exploded, I guess, since the idea of iPS cell technology and disease-specific lines and recapitulating pathology that manifests in people who are walking around in addition to genetic level and at a cellular level. But that has unique challenges. Let's not poo-poo the mouse. You've worked a lot in the mouse. I know some of your recent work also is focused on numerous genes that are related to autism or have been linked with autism. And that has its challenges too, right? The mouse is not a human. Can you manifest mm -hmm. the same kind of behavioral manifestations? Can you talk with us about some of the respective challenges and opportunities in the mouse versus the human and how the IPS, like specifically what it is about the IPS cell technology that has enabled the breakthroughs that you're kind of alluding to and what the major challenges are still with the IPS, which I'm sure we can all imagine. It's a very good question because in my lab, we still live in both worlds. I could argue it's 50-50, where we have mouse models of certain autism spectrum disorder risk genes, but we also have the same models in the human IPS cell versions. And the reason for that is because I think having two different models and trying to get at you know, a common answer, it allows you to make maybe the strength of your conclusions a little bit more, more so than just using one model. There's lots of challenges with the mouse. And one of the main things I think is, especially in brain development disorders, where we are, all of us are really looking not just to understand the genomics and what the disease really is, but really getting at trying to fix it. So are there going to be small molecules, drugs that can be used in this context? And having currently living in both worlds of mouse and human, I just don't see in the current phase how we're going to be able to do drug screening using mouse models. It's still really slow. It is, you know, a living organism, a three-dimensional brain. And we use it for those aspects. But for drug screening measures, I really do think that the scaling up that's required to get at the same level that's already occurring in fields like cancer, you really need a cell-based model to kind of get at this. I mean, who knows what the future holds? But for now, I think to being able to do drug screening, human cells are really the way to go. And then for us, what we like to do is take those same models where we have a mouse and then if drugs are working in the dish, you know, put them back into a mouse for the same gene if it's a knockout or a knock-in for a specific mutation, and then see, can you correct those autism-like or schizophrenia-like behavioral symptoms that you associate in a mouse, but kind of pairing the discovery of IPS to a mouse or even vice versa. So there are a lot of challenges, but the reason that we work on both is to try to overcome each one and using the other one as an advantage to kind of get over that. Can we move from the drug discovery aspect to more specifically the genes that are involved and how you're actually accessing which genes are important for different disorders? No, absolutely. Where all of our studies are based upon the really you know, amazing time that we have where whole genome sequencing is done on almost every single study. So we're part of this uh, missing project that is uh, based in Canada with one of the, the two senior authors, uh, the other co-senior authors on the paper, Dr. Stephen Shear and James Ells. So Stephen Shear is well-known in the field. So he's you know a whole genome sequencing person who's doing over 10,000 families in, of autism in Canada. So we are basing all of our genomics and our findings on what he's finding and how we move forward. And these are human genes, human disorders. So we absolutely need to use human cells to kind of study 
what we would think could be the human-specific functions of these genes. But having said that, we know there's limitations. And so we do fall back on the mice for certain things where it, many times where we hit roadblocks or we want to make sure that the finding that we think is much more generalizable than it really is. And we have another model to go to. But the iPS cell technology, in addition to the scalability of it, you know, I think it provides a very unique window into modeling brain disorders where we really can't do this in obviously in people or, or any other models that are currently being used. Uh, you know, there are things that are up and coming, but in its current form to me, I think iPS cells are the best way to model brain disorders and human brain disorders. So really, this is the reason that we focus on using iPS cells as well. And yeah, that's just so many genes seem to play a role. You know, there's a lot of genes, I'm sure more than 10, maybe I'm wrong, that have been <laughs> autism spectrum disorder and it kind of bears out in the phenotype. I guess in the last decade or more, we've appreciated the spectrum nature of the disease and how you can fall anywhere along there. Is there like a unifying mechanism that justifies calling all these things kind of the same disease, autism, I guess it's not it's autism spectrum, but it's the mm -hmm. same idea, I guess. Is there a unifying molecular mechanism that it links all these handful of genes? Are we really talking about multiple disease phenotypes that look alike? It's a very good question because this is a time where we are trying to decipher this. There are hundreds, thousands of genes that are really involved in autism. You know, for the high-risk genes, there are definitely more than 10, depending upon which who you look at it and what source you get it from, it's at least probably 100 strongly, if not you know, very strongly associated autism genes. So these are essentially genetic forms of autism spectrum disorders. The institute I work in, there's a lot of people who work on cancer. And so whenever I describe the work that I'm doing, you know, this is essentially what we, we have, essentially what people call cancer envy, where the cancer field has a way of taking certain genes and putting certain phenotypes and even druggable targets onto certain genetic forms of cancer. So this is kind of what we're trying to do in autism, is take these different forms that are genetically linked, and that's the reason we're starting with genetics, is because it's tractable. We understand at least what we think is the cause. And then identify some kind of a syndrome that is associated with it. And eventually, what's happening is that there's not a single specific pathway or or even cell type that's involved but we're trying to see, what we're seeing is that many of these genes even though they're independent forms of autism they are coalescing and forming other common pathways or common cell types that are affected and so that's one of the advantages of the paper that we just have recently published in stem cell reports is that using ips cells we can screen multiple genes at the same time in an, what we call an isogenic manner where we can remove the genetic background that is usually very difficult to overcome in terms of the numbers of patients you need to kind of reprogram for iPS cells to get a phenotype. If you remove that and take an exogenic approach, we were able to do in a fairly short period of time is screen multiple genes in the same background. So that's uh, so I think we screened 10 to 15 genes in this paper. That would be akin to doing 10 to 15 knockout mouse models, which if you ask any mouse researcher, that's just a nightmare. And no one's going to fund that project. So in iPS cells, it's an achievable goal. And in fact, that's really one of the advantages of using it. So it allows us to kind of come up with unifying theories in a single study because we can study many genes and many different causes of autism at the same time. And looking at these various genes, according to the paper, this all the genes were involved in, in determining how the neurons from these iPS cells, how they connected to each other. And autism really is connectivity issue at its core. This is one of the more unifying theories I think a lot of people will agree with. I think how connectivity is dis disrupted, people will argue, and they'll have their favorite mechanism. But connectivity is a large issue here. It's different than age-related brain disorders, where you have losses of certain cell types. In autism, overall, I think that there's really changes in the cell number. But the number of connections, the synapses that, that neurons are making, or how they're communicating, or how other cell types in their brain are helping to have neurons communicate with each other. This is really at the core of the issue. And so neural circuit dysfunction is really a common element amongst many different autism mouse models now. So we can say this from whether it's mouse models or even iPSC models, this seems to be a very common element. 
So this is something that, that we focused on in the paper also because you know, we're able to use uh, some very innovative and, and exciting technology to be able to look at the gold standard electrical connectivity, like, like SNAP physiology in iPSC neurons. And so for us, it's a fantastic way to study multiple genes at the same time. This was really never possible before. It's always been one gene at a time or one project at a time. And here, this is, a, I think, a very nice example of where when, you know, three labs come together and work together and exchange reagents, we can actually achieve something pretty exciting in a relatively short period of time, which would have taken years and years if you had individual mouse models that you were studying. Yeah, I have to say one of the more impressive parts of the story was the, the technology with the patch clamp and really assessing the synapse at such a high level of resolution there, as you said, in the context of these multiple hits. It seems like you're integrating all these genes and the phenotypes at the cell level. And that's, I think, the benefit of the IPS because you can deconstruct the system and look at very fundamental metrics like you were with the connectivity. Is there a plan or is there methods that you could integrate that into like a 3D human brain, like via organoids? And if you could take that approach, what degree of organization or stratification would you need within the organoid? Is it something that's feasible at the current state of the art or can you not really approach the level of complexity where autism spectrum disorders manifest without going into an animal? This is a really exciting question because I get asked this all the time. You know, have you, if for these same genes or for other genes you're working on, have you made organoids? How strongly are you pursuing this act? So for us, we're taking slightly of a reserved approach. And part of the reason is organoids are fantastic. They're really exciting. I think we're still right in the middle of kind of developing a better organoid, a cerebral organoid, and one that will recapitulate a lot of the different aspects, not just some of the aspects of human neural development that can be measured. So for us, taking this specific paper, the study that we just published, we are really interested in synaptic physiology, you know, not just when neurons are born or how they migrate, are they forming correct layers? We're, we're more, a little bit later in development. So for us, that time point, it's very variable in organoids. And so I don't think we, if we use organoids for the current study, we wouldn't have been able to come up with a very consistent phenotype. But that's not to say this is not gonna be achievable in the next few years. I know it will be. I've already seen some unpublished work that's super exciting, showing us how organoids can develop and mature. And I think when that stage is set so that it can be now generalizable and used across different labs, I think the next wave of studies will be doing the exact same thing that we've done, but now make organoids in a three-dimensional context and see how does synaptic physiology change with respect to autism risk genes when you knock them out or if you put in patient mutations across many of them at the same time in organoids. So that will be possible, but at, at the current stage, it's literally like in the next few years, you'll see some labs do this. I think in terms of the scalability, which is what we're interested in, to be able to do multiple genes at the same time and have it consistent between the different conditions so you can come up with a very strong conclusion. We're just not there yet, but we're definitely gonna be you know, watching the organoid field very closely. We've already started it, and we're just hoping that the right system comes in where the consistency is, is there. How is this study going to help you and your collaborators push toward the drug screening that is important to you? Are these gene targets that you've looked at in this particular study? Are there others that you're looking at in other studies that you're going to be incorporating into that platform looking for the drugs that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, so we're continuing to work on you know, more genes. We're streamlining a few genes that are very top priority amongst our collaborators. For us, the drug screening comes to trying to achieve something so that if we find a drug for a specific genetic hit, that we hope it will be applicable to other genetic forms of autism as well. So that's part of the reason for doing our study on what we call this isogenic background, where we can essentially do anything that's different between the lines are the mutations or the knockouts. What we're doing is we're, we're drug screening on some of the stronger lines and so that when we have a common phenotype across different genes or if in the future we probed to five or ten more genes and a few of those knockouts had the same synaptic phenotype that we had in this current study, we would hope that when we do some drug testing that you can have a single drug or a class of drugs that would be applicable to more than one form of autism. This is part of the reason why a lot of people are trying to have this unifying theory so that a single signaling pathway or a form of autism is actually much more generalizable. 
So this is exactly what we're trying to do right now, is take these genetically identified forms of autism, drug screen on them, and see how really applicable are they to other forms. And the one thing we haven't touched upon in this study at all is much more the scary aspect really is idiopathic autism. So autism without a genetic link or a known genetic cause, and that's the majority of autism cases so far, you know, how applicable will our findings, and even if we find a drug that works, will it be to other, a non-genetically identified form of autism? That's more in the future, but that's something that we also have our eye on. Bringing up the idiopathic autism is really interesting. I mean, are these the gene targets that you're looking at right now? Do you think that these are disrupted by environmental triggers during sensitive developmental periods? And is that what potentially leads to the idiopathy? It could very well be. I think this is a bit of a scary area because we really it's unknown. We just don't know. It could be environmental triggers. It can be a whole host of things. It can be something that we it's hard to describe. But what we're hoping in the end is that for a majority of those cases, it's still a, a biological disorder. So there's going to be something that's disrupted during neural development. And we're betting on some of the same core pathways that we're finding in the genetic forms of autism, that they will also be dis- disrupted in idiopathic. And so for us, it's more about at this stage, cataloging all the different genes, or at least trying to in the field, the ones that are priority, you know, cataloging not just one or two genes at a time, but doing it at 10, 20, 30, 40 genes at a time. To find out what are the synaptic phenotypes, what are the different pathways that are affected, what are the different phenotypes that can be related eventually when we start to tackle the idiopathic autism. So if you find commonalities in phenotypes between idiopathic versus the genetic form, the hope and the goal is that whatever it is you find for the known genetic form of autism can be applied to the unknown. It's very similar in neurodegeneration as well, where we're, the majority of the cases are idiopathic. So It's our way of trying to attempt to get at the underlying cause of idiopathic autism. So that, I mean, it raises an interesting question. Maybe I'm stepping back here, betraying my ignorance, but uh, I'm not afraid to do that. Won't be the first or last time. The way I see it, I guess there's an impression with the early intervention now, behavioral intervention, that the autism is progressive and that if you get in there early enough with the behavioral modifications or attend to it, that you can mitigate. And so I'm guessing that the kind of drug, the pharma paradigm would be similar, that you would be drugging the target there during the early development in order to mitigate the symptoms. Is it defined whether this is something that manifests like neurodegeneration where you start with an intact and then it degenerates? Or do we know that that's the case or also be that, you know, the way it's set up? And during neural development, you know, during in utero, that that's where the issue is. Have we distinguished between those two possibilities? And if it were either or both, you could also target in utero. But would it, would it be a similar type of, you know, treatment paradigm if there was different origins? This is the uh, really difficult question to answer because it's, it's not clear early on how the brain is changing. These are ongoing studies you know, all over the world, especially at the NIH, where they're, they're doing developmental trajectories using brain imaging, for example, as one way to see how the brain changes. Can you use imaging to pick up, you know, a very clinically significant change? And is that, will that be sufficient to call an individual with potential autism very early on, maybe, you know, under two or three years of life? From our point of view, the idea would be if a drug could ever be used on an individual very early on, what, we, what our goal is that we would pair, for example, drugs with that behavioral intervention. So I think one thing, even though you get in early and you're doing behavior modification, it's still a biological disorder. You know, you may be able to fix certain circuits or change them, or, or I don't even want to use a corrective, but you may be able to alter neural circuits very early on. But it's still a biological issue, especially for those genetically defined forms of autism. So the goal is that if we can find druggable pathways, and find those compounds that can actually correct the biological act dysfunction, then a certain molecule, a certain drug could be paired with intensive behavioral therapy. Because I think the behavioral therapy may not be working on everyone. We know it doesn't work for everyone. And maybe for individuals where it doesn't work, why is it not working? What if you had a specific drug that was able to correct their biological dysfunction in their brain, or at least partially correct it, paired with behavioral therapy? Maybe that is what's going to give that child the best chance for an outcome. So right now, we're not at that stage, but we're hoping to get there. So it's more of a combination 
as opposed to one versus the other, but that will give children the best advantage in trying to overcome this, you know, really early neural developmental insult. What are you working on right now that you are most excited about and you're just really hoping to see some good results from? We've taken this published study for us, especially for my lab, being slightly more junior than the other investigators. It's a proof or principle of what happens when you can collaborate in a very fruitful and, and an open manner. You can get things done a lot faster where you exchange reagents and things like that. So for us, for my lab, this has really opened the door of what we're going to be doing next. So in addition to just doing more genes, we're actually trying to, to really get at the biological pathway that are dysfunctional in from the study. So from the study, we've really identified five of the 10 or five of the 15 genes that we looked at had a common phenotype. They're very different. If you look at, you know, if you did like a, a Google search or a PubMed search on their function, we think that because they have a common phenotype, there must be something at the signaling pathway level that's really unifying them to give them this common phenotype. So for us, we're getting to some really new techniques, things like uh, proteomics, uh, you know, obviously RNA sequencing, trying to get at uh, the earlier question that you had, had asked about what's common between all of these, it, in addition to just the phenotype. So there's a synaptic phenotype, but why is that? Well, how is this occurring? If you look at these genes, they have, well, have different functions. You would never assume that they're all going to produce the same phenotype. So for us, the next stage is really using proteomics in combination with our IPSC and mouse models to try and get at the underlying pathways that are dysfunctional so that eventually we can come up with certain drug targets or at least targets that can maybe be druggable and kind of go further in our hypothesis. And I expect a long career ahead along those <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> it's a good segue to our finale here. You know, we end each show with a final question, of course. The last question, it's the end of the show, but it's one of three, and we're adding a fourth now. It's one of three general questions that we cater to the guest, and we've added a fourth because you're such an individual. And uh, <laughs> you're at the beginning of a fruitful career, and I think there's a lot of people that could benefit from your experience there. So the question is, how do you get off the ground as a young investigator? What are some of the challenges and some of your strategies that have enabled you to break through? This is... A question I get asked a lot now because I've, I'm, about, I'm year six now, so there's a lot of new people who are kind of behind me, and, and now are, I'm seeing them struggle, and, and they're asking me, what did it take for you to get to where I am now? And the overall kind of sentiment that I give to people is learn and appreciate collaboration, that you cannot do everything yourself nowadays. It's so much easier said than actually done because we're trained to be individuals. We're trained to have our own labs. We're trained to accomplish something and say that I did it. But now it's more of we did it. And this paper is a very clear example of that. This paper only came to existence in terms of helping my career out because of collaborations with Steve Shearer and James Ellis at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. They were very collaborative. And more than that is that I reached out to them and I said, I have certain ways of doing things that I think you might really be interested in. And it's kind of going out on a limb and trying to form collaborations. And when you, even when you have a door shut on you, you just keep going forward. You try to find another door that's open. Because this has to be done. There's no way that a junior person can just do everything themselves. That's the major reason why I've been, I like to think of myself as being somewhat successful in the first six years of, of running my lab. But it's through collaboration. And more so than that is one of the things I always tell people is obviously write grants. You know, you have to do your best at doing that, but get feedback. So don't think that a minimal amount of feedback is enough. Ask for help. Go out on a limb. Ask for help from people that you would never even ask help from. You'd be surprised at the types of people that will give you help in terms of helping you write grants, just advice in general. Young people don't do that. They feel like it's a way of uh, showing that you're vulnerable or showing that you're not really knowledgeable in your field kind of thing where you don't want to get criticism. You don't want to feel that lack of better word pain when someone tears up your grant. But you really have to do that. To me, that's how I kind of got over that hump is just remembering that at the end of the process, the grant will be better. You'll get funded, but you kind of have to get over it. So it's about asking for help. And you'd be surprised at the number of people who just don't ask for help or they don't ask for enough help. That's my advice. If you ask for help and you ask to collaborate, you ask for input into your program. And the more you do it, the better it is. But you have to keep doing that because it's something that does not talk to us early on. It's You should just know. You should just be good and you can do it all yourself. Great advice. 
I felt exactly what you're describing. <laughs> like a loser. I mean, for lack of a better word, I don't need yeah. help. Go on. You gave me this position. I be, I better be able to hold it if I asked for yeah. help to train. We've all been there, right? So I'm sure yeah. a lot of the middle stage, senior stage, they had to ask for help too, and I'm sure they're willing to uh, pay it down. Even the neurons in our brains, they need help, right? All those astrocytes, oligodendrocytes. <laughs> all the cell types. <laughs> they all work together, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We need the support. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for joining us on the Stem Cell Podcast today. It has been just wonderful talking to you about your work. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was fantastic. I'm really excited. We're excited to see where your work goes. It just sounds fabulous. And we hope that you have many fruitful collaborations in the future. Yes, I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And be sure to tune in for the next episode, which is going to be my very last episode with the Stem Cell Podcast. This is my penultimate episode, and I... It's bittersweet as I have things that I am going to move on to and continue to do, but Daylin will be holding down the fort here. So after next episode, we'll, next episode, we'll talk more about the plans for the Stem Cell Podcast and what's actually going on, but we just wanted to let you know. And in the meantime, if you are interested in following more general science news, you can find me at This Week in Science, my other podcast, twist.org, T-W-I-S dot O-R-G is the website. And if you need help figuring out how to talk about your science, do you want to make a podcast? Do you want a video for a recent paper, a video abstract, something for your lab? I have a video production company called Broader Impacts Productions, where I can help you do that if you're interested. So reach out to me. You can find me online at Dr. Kiki, D-R-K-I-K-I. -K -I. I'm on Twitter. I'm also online. You can email me at Kirsten, K-I-R-S-T-E-N, at broaderimpacts.tv. So much information for you, but if you're interested, I am out there. Yeah, we'll get that info on the website so everyone can have a look. I got to tell you, I'm totally gutted, Kiki, that you're leaving us and you're leaving me. And I'm trying <laughs> to take it personally. It's not personal, <laughs> Dalen. I know, I know. You got stuff, you got stuff. But I just wanted to throw it out there that I couldn't have done this at all without you. I listened for the first time to some of the early episodes and realized how horrible I was and how tolerant and uh you know generous you were with your native gift for communication and i'd like to think that i picked up a little bit of that and i'm going to try and carry it forward for the listeners but i won't hold it against you guys if you just press on and move to wherever kiki lands <laughs> they can do both i believe our listeners have room in their hearts <laughs> and they will continue i think you are going to be an amazing Amazing host carrying the torch for the stem cell podcast moving into the future. We'll see if, well. if so, it's due to you. So thanks, Keith. We'll talk details next episode, but for now, I'm just going to feel hollowed out. No, hold on to that optimism. Let's keep that positive <laughs> light, Dalen. All right. This yeah. concludes, huh? Without <laughs> you, the light. Now we're going to move on. We're going to do great new year absolutely new year new stem cell podcast okay this concludes episode 130 of the stem cell podcast thank you all for another great show thanks dalen thank you Keith.